training the next generation of AI leaders to really be thinking not just about the technology, but the ethical and moral implications of it. You know, if nobody exposes these young people to, to that side of technology, I, I think we, not, we won't be designing technology in a human-centric way, which we absolutely need it to be. So I am incredibly excited to have someone who I consider a role model, a mentor, and a very good friend on the podcast this week. Uh, Dr. Rana El Kaliubi is the co-founder and CEO of Effectiva and the author of Girl Decoded, a memoir where she explores her quest to reclaim our humanity by bringing emotional intelligence to technology. She's been recognized as one of Fortune's 40 Under 40 and by Forbes as one of America's top 50 women in tech. And while I know that bio can be sound very intimidating, when you actually get to hear her and hear how incredibly intelligent and thoughtful she is about the amount of power and innovation that she has at her fingertips and that she's created through her company, you'll be even more in awe. This is At The Table with Dr. Elam Murabit. Now, for those of you who don't know me, I am a UN high-level commissioner on health, employment, and economic growth, one of 17 global UN sustainable development goal advocates. I am also a medical doctor and a women's rights champion and strategist. I have traveled the world and met people who are leaders in their own industries, and I've met people who have completely changed the game, from names that we know to names that we don't. There are people who have championed inclusive security more than anything else. So At The Table is really a collection of in-depth conversations and interviews with leaders in all industries. It's looking at how we create systems and structures and communities and selves that really represent what we need in the world today. Now, it's been called At The Table because I think the single most important thing is for us to create and cultivate spaces. And this one is mine where I invite you to connect with and to learn from and to teach one another about the importance of inclusive leadership and making sure that when you are at any table, you are bringing somebody with you, an idea with you, a perspective with you that isn't already there. So thank you again for joining me. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for listening and for being here. And please let me know, what does being at the table mean to you? And who are you bringing with you? Rana, thank you so much for joining me this week. Thank you, Ale, and right back at you, my friend. <laughs> I'm a big fan uh, of you, as you know, as well. I, know, I love it. I like basically, I joked around with somebody a couple of weeks ago that I created a podcast, which was more or less the Mutual Appreciation Society. It was all the people <laughs> who I thought were so incredible, like that I had to just share their incredibleness. Uh, but you've, you've kind of been on a journey these past few months in particular. You've done all of this incredible work. And I'm going to first and foremost ask you to kind of rewind a little bit and um, tell us where your love for a combination of emotional intelligence and technology, two things that most people don't really put together, um, came from and, and what really kind of got you on this path. But before that, I would like to ask you how you're feeling today. If you had to say in two words only. In two words only. Um, hopeful. Hopeful, um, okay. Hopeful, yeah. And um, I would say a little bit anxious, actually. Yeah, as we as we head into the fall, yeah, there's a lot of um, unknowns, both uh, you know, both just in the state of the world with 
our school, with my kids' schools, um, with our business, just a lot of unknown. So a little bit of anxiety, to be honest. So what makes you hopeful? Yeah, hopeful. You know, I'm, as uh, you know me well, I'm, I'm a problem solver. I always, I, I, I always kind of rally and, and find um, light. And, and I always kind of see obstacles as the way. So I'm, I'm always up for any challenges. So, and, and, and I think kind of pairing all of this uncertainty with a little bit of uh, hope and a lot of faith is, is how I usually kind of tackle these big challenges. So, okay, so you've put me on the perfect path, but <laughs> some people might think we rehearsed this, Rana. Um, these big challenges. I mean, you're somebody who is tackling kind of this behemoth of an industry. Mm-hmm. And, and oftentimes, and I'm, I'm assuming you get this very frequently, people do not assume that technology can have emotion, can understand human emotion, can, can be a tool in better understanding one another. So can you tell us about where your journey started and why you feel so passionately about that intersection? Yeah, I'll, I'll go all the way back. Uh, I grew up in the Middle East, so I'm originally from Egypt. Uh, grew up uh, in Cairo, and then my parents moved to the Middle East. So we lived in Kuwait until the first Gulf War, and then in Abu Dhabi. But basically, both my t- parents are technologists, and we grew up very, very kind of familiar with the state of the art technologies. And from, from the very beginning, I was always intrigued about how technology helps people connect in different and new ways. So for me, it's never been about the technology per se. It's been about how technology is a mediator for human to human connection. Um, I took all of that and I studied computer science as an undergraduate. And again, I was really drawn into human machine interfaces, that kind of boundary where humans and machines meet. And I was really kind of intrigued by that. And then I kind of dove into the field of artificial intelligence and intelligence in general and drawing inspiration, I'd say, from human intelligence. Um, As you know, it's not just about your IQ. Uh, In fact, it's often more about your EQ, your emotional intelligence, than it is about your cognitive intelligence. And, And this marriage of IQ and EQ is what makes people really special, but it's missing in technology. Yeah, so 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 that kind of set me on a path to marry IQ and EQ in technology and really build technology with a new eye towards human centric, like, right? Like technology at the end of the day and AI at the end of the day is, is really about us and it's in service of us, the humans. Um, and I, so I've been advocating for humanizing technology really before it dehumanizes us. But where did that come from? Cause that's not a natural conclusion. I mean, I understand your parents are technologists and this is the, the, this world has always been a part of your world, but you looked at it and you saw something that was missing that most people in it don't. Right. So, so where did that passion come from? Where did the idea sprout from? Was there a particular moment where you were like, this is what needs to happen or, or was it organic from your own, from what you felt was, was missing in your own journey? No, I do think there was a, as a moment that kind of inspired my research. So um, I decided to do my PhD uh, at Cambridge University. So I was living in Cairo and then got the scholarship to go do my PhD at Cambridge University. And I land in Cambridge and, you know, I, I had this aha moment that I was spending more time in front of my laptop. This was over 
10 years ago, uh, 20 years ago now. Um, I was spending more time in front of my laptop than I was with any other human being, yet this machine was completely oblivious to how I was feeling. So there were often times when I was really uh, stressed because of an upcoming deadline or I felt really lonely and, and this machine had just zero clue. Um, and I also realized that it was the main portal of communication with my family back home. Yet once again, all of the nonverbal, all of the richness of our communication, like our facial expressions, our vocal intonation, like all of that disappeared, um, you know, in, in cyberspace, if you like, when, when we connect online and, and communicate primarily via text. So, so that got me thinking, I was like, hmm, you know, what if, what if computers could understand emotions just the way humans can? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And so you, when you were in Cambridge, you were doing your PhD, how many years were you there for? I was there um, for four and a half years. And over the course of the four and a half years, you began to recognize that there were some limitations. Now, I, I have to ask this just out of personal curiosity, because it's a question I've always wondered. At any point in your in this journey where you were sitting there thinking like, okay, I spend so much time with my computer, it doesn't necessarily understand or read my emotions. At any point, did it begin to kind of dawn or, or, or did you start going to colleagues in the space and talking about this and then being like, what are you talking about? <laughs> yes, yes. The initial reactions, in fact, from my, even from my PhD advisor, uh, Peter Robinson, who, who, you know, was a great advocate for my work, but you could tell, like, he had a lot of questions. He was like, why do we really need to do that? Like, why do you need to build empathy in our machines? And so I would often create these large boards and these mind maps <laughs> and walk, walk into his office with these, <laughs> with these boards and just walk him through my vision. Um, I love was, that. You're like, please uh, step into my brain for a second. I'll explain things to you. <laughs> you know, there was one, there was one um, time when I really wanted to convince the lab that this was uh, something worth pursuing. So I was giving a presentation to the computer science department. There was maybe about 50 to 70 people in the audience. And I decided to drive the point home. I was going to start my presentation with my back to everybody. So I walk in say hi, and then immediately turn my back and I just start talking to the wall. And it was just this moment where everybody was just on their seat, right? Because I, I, it was stressful for me because I couldn't mm -hmm. see everybody's responses. Um, they really wanted to see my nonverbals. And then I turned around, you know, a few minutes later and I said, see, like our nonverbal signals really matter, but they are non-existent in a digital world. And I think that drove that, I think that, that, that kind of convinced. Uh, Got the message form. home. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I can imagine how powerful that would be. I know like even when I'm having kind of more sensitive conversations with friends, even on computer and even being able to like, sometimes like hear their voice, you just can't necessarily see what their expressions are. You can't see their reactions. You can't get a read for it. So you, you go to your supervisor, you say, listen, I want to build empathy into technology. And then what happens? And then I, um, I have to, I, I, I had to immerse myself into the science of emotions and the science of facial expressions, which is not my training, right? I'm a computer scientist by background, um, but I ended up spending a lot of time in the psychology department, and in fact, collaborated with the head of the Autism Research Center at Cambridge because at the time, um, Simon Baring Cohen um, and his team, they were 
building a database of emotions to help kids on the autism spectrum read and understand facial expressions. And I ended up meeting him and I said, hey, can I use that same data set to train my algorithm to recognize facial expressions? And he was kind enough to share this data set with me. And, and so I set on this path, yeah, to build the very first kind of um, facial expression analysis engine. So basically you would use any camera, any webcam to understand whether you're smiling or smirking or raising your eyebrows. Um, and you did that. So when you were doing that, were you still in Cambridge, UK, or by then had you gone back to Cairo or had you moved? No, I was still a PhD student then at, based in Cambridge. Uh, and in fact, I had, I had uh, my daughter, Jana, uh, then too. So, um, so, so I would, you know, I would wake up in the morning, drop her off at daycare, dash off to the lab, code, 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 and then, you know, just go back and pick her up. Uh, it, was, it was definitely intense. For all our listeners, uh, Rana's daughter, Jenna, is incredible. A couple of, and this is a testament, I think, to your parenting, to be quite honest. Um, she's been working with me this past summer, and a couple of weeks ago when I asked her, okay, so, you know, where do you see yourself in a few years? She came back a couple of days later. She's like, so my family did this vision mapping. <laughs> and I was like, oh, you are definitely Rana's daughter. For sure. There's like zero, there's zero uh, hesitation for, for that. But I, I have to ask, Rana, so you, you're in Cambridge, UK, you're doing your PhD, then you complete this, you've clearly got some buy-in from your community. How did you go from kind of manifesting this, like building empathy into technology and working on the psychology of facial expressions and really putting this idea into practice to building a multi-million dollar company? Yeah, so towards the end of my PhD, and I call this serendipitous engineering. Um, so towards the end of my PhD, we got this email from this MIT professor, Rosalind Picard, who I'd been following her work forever. I mean, I had read her book, Affective Computing, where she posited this idea of emotional intelligence and technology, but I'd never met her in person. So as it turns out, she was going to be in Cambridge, UK uh, for a, a keynote, but she said, you know, I have an hour uh, an extra hour before my talk and I want to meet, you know, PhD students who are in, in the same space. And so of course I signed up and I spent, you know, weeks leading up to that meeting, like really preparing my demo and my pitch and, um, you know, really, really, really preparing for that meeting. And, and, and we met and totally hit it off. And she said, do you want to come work with me? Um, at MIT? And I was like, Oh my goodness, that's like a dream come true. Uh, so I joined her lab at the MIT Media Lab. And, and, and Rosalind, you, the book that you've mentioned, Effective Computing, you had read that before you started your PhD. Was that one of the things that really kind of encouraged you in this space where you were like, oh, there's other people thinking in this direction? Or was that something that happened as a product of you actually just doing your own project and your own PhD? No, I read that while I was back in Cairo, and it definitely got me thinking about all of this. Uh, and I, and I, I, I would say this book changed the trajectory of my life because it kind of set me on this path to become really passionate about all of this. Wow. Right? Yeah. That is incredible. So you come to MIT, you're at the MIT Media Lab, you're part of Professor Picard's group, and what how does like my I, I i'm trying to draw that string from where this is kind of this budding idea and you're really proving it in the, in that 
somewhat kind of siloed tech space to becoming this multi-million dollar company where everyone is saying, oh my goodness, we did not think this was possible. How do you take it from theory to practice? So while I was at the MIT Media Lab, and as you know, with the Media Lab, there's a lot of um, kind of connections with industry and it's this multidisciplinary environment. Um, so at the, at the time, I was very focused on applying my technology to autism. But twice mm -hmm. a year, we would sponsor all these companies and we, it was show and tell. In fact, we called it demo or die. You had to like really show up with the technology, not <laughs> slides, right? Like, um, and so I would, sh for about three years in a row, um, Roz and I would showcase this autism device and all these companies would say, oh, we're so interested. Like we want to buy this for, you know, Toyota wanted to buy it for drowsiness detection. Bank of America wanted to measure customer experience. Procter and Gamble wanted to test their latest, you know, products. Pepsi wanted to test their latest flavors. It was just the list went on and on. And I kept a logbook of all of these different um, kind of asks. And eventually when we got to about 20 of these, I thought the solution was we needed just more PhD students in the group. <laughs> um, and, 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 the, and the direct media lab director at the time, Frank Moss, he said, um, no, this is not a research challenge anymore. This is a commercialization opportunity and you guys ought to spin out. So, um, and, and I have to say, like at the time, my career plan was to become faculty. So I was gearing up, you know, putting together my faculty application and all of that. So starting a company was really not on my mind, but I was so intrigued by this idea of taking something I cared deeply about and very passionate about and really scaling it and bring it, you know, bringing it to the world in a really big way. And so that was the tipping point for starting Affectiva. And so once you started it, I know that it, you write in your book, Girl Decoded, which is an incredible, I think, you know, memoir and almost like manual for, for your own leadership, for, for a reader to manifest their own leadership and understand kind of the roots of what makes them capable. But you, you write that you did not take on the role of CEO immediately. Yes. So when we started the company, which is uh, 10 years ago now, uh, Roz and I, um, decided to hire a seasoned business executive to run the company. And he ran the company for the first four years. Um, and then he decided to move on. And so the question became, okay, who's going to be the next CEO? And a few board members said, oh, Rana should be, it's her, it's her baby. And, you know, she's really deeply immersed in, in this uh, space. And I remember going back home and I was just so scared because I'd never been CEO before. And I just didn't want to fail. And so I, you know, I thought about it. And, and the next day I said, you know what, I, 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 I'm, I, I'm not going to do it. At the same time, our head of sales, who had also never been CEO before, he said, sure, I'll take it on. <laughs> Classic, right? <laughs> um, so he became CEO um, for, 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 you know, he became CEO. And then right after the TED Talk, I know we both, you know, we both gave our, uh, our TED Talks together. So on the flight back and the next day, I, I, I just really thought about it. And I felt like I actually went on Google and I Googled like, what is the role of a CEO? And I created a, a, a Word document with all these bullet points. And I quickly realized I was already doing the job. So I had raised yeah. venture and strategic money for the company. I was the face of the company evangelizing the space. Um, I was very deeply um, involved with our hiring and 
our product development because again it was like right it's like my domain expertise mm -hmm. so i just i just realized i was doing the job and so i mustered all the courage i have which, which i had to do a lot of and i went to our then ceo and i said you know i i think i'm ready to first i said let's be co-ceo and he said that's a really dumb idea <laughs> <laughs> The more we talked, the more I was like, actually, I want to be the CEO. And, um, you know, and, and, and he said, okay, I think you're ready. So he, he stepped back and we took it to the board. I did not want to go behind his back. We had built a lot of trust by then and I just didn't want to stage a coup. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I yeah. So you took it to the board? Took it to the board. It was a unanimous vote and I stepped into the role of CEO four and a half years ago now. And, um, and I, and I really wanted, I kind of use it as an opportunity to reset the culture and, and really come into my own as a leader. Um, I lead with empathy. I think it's so important, um, to start with empathy and have, mm -hmm. you know, pair that with a lot of transparency and a lot, and, and, but also decision-making and decisiveness, right? So that's, that's where I'm, I know for a fact, that's where I'm my weakest. I'm one of the least decisive. I can be incredibly decisive about certain things, but you ask me like the most mundane questions and I will flounder. So I, I think it's incredible that you can say that's one of my cornerstones. That's one of the strengths I know I have coming into this. Now, Rana, you and I have had a lot of conversations in the past about kind of the assumptions that people make. Particularly, mm -hmm. you know, we've, we've talked at length about the assumptions people make about women in technology or the assumptions that people make about us, you know, being Muslim women or from mm -hmm. the Middle East or all of those nuances that make you the leader that you are. And I think one of the things that I admire so much about you is you are, you are, your integrity in who you are is so incredible. You show up everywhere as yourself. As, and, and it doesn't matter if you're the CEO and you say, okay, we're going to lead with empathy or transparency, or if you show up in a room where people just cannot imagine leadership looking like us and mm -hmm. say, no, I'm here and I'm a leader. And you, and you own it incredibly. And so I have to ask, A, where did that come from? That sense of like power and confidence and self-awareness. But why do you think it's so important for you to speak up? Or why do you think it's so important for women who are interested in fields that often aren't what you know, society deems normal to speak up? So I'll answer this. I'll, I'll, I'll start with the second part of your question. I realized, you know, in the last few years that for better or worse, I'm a role model. And when you see people who look like you, right, who have, you know, forged their own path, who have created their own journey and their career opportunities, you look at them and you say, oh, well, if she's done it, then I can too. And to me, that is, that is often what drives me out of bed every day. I, I, I know that somebody's watching and they're looking at me, they're looking at you and they're saying, wow, you know, if she's done it, I can do it too. And, and that's really powerful. And we need way more examples out there to empower, you know, not just young women, but young people and not just young people, all people, right? Um, and celebrate all these different voices. So I think that's really important. I will say though, that hasn't always been the case. Um, mm -hmm. I have, I mean, I don't know about you, but I have a ton of inner doubt um, that I have to always grapple with. 
um, and I've gotten better about it. Um, but, but do you have more, do you have more doubt now than you did at the beginning of your career? Or do you find that it kind of ebbs and flows with responsibility or with time or? I think it ebbs and flows. I think, I think it's, it's uh, loudest, I guess. Um, when I, uh, when I'm about to step outside of my comfort zone, right? Like, Mm -hmm. um, when I'm about to take a new role or when, you know, we're, we're taking on a, a big, hairy, audacious goal, goal, like all, all of these scenarios where I'm stepping outside of my comfort zone, I would say this is when this voice is loudest. And I've learned over the years to embrace it. Like now I'll have this rebuttal with this voice. I journal a lot. Um, <laughs> do you journal by the way? I do actually. I find it's very helpful to, I get anxious. So I'm, I'm very, I'm a lot like you. I get anxious and it's not even necessarily um, matched to a role or anything that's changing in, in my life mm-hmm. um, because I, and I wish it were because I, I think I'd, I'd better understand kind of the, the, demand, the dynamics. Mm-hmm. Mine is more like I'll, I'll genuinely randomly wake up one day and be like, oh, it, this doesn't feel right. You know what I mean? Like yeah. I, I'm not like prepared for this or I'm not capable for this and nothing will have changed in, in, in what I'm doing or it'll, it'll genuinely just, I'll wake up one day. And so journaling has been a huge relief in terms of like almost kind of disempowering that inside voice, if that makes sense. Exactly. Totally. I totally make sense. It's like, it's often, I call it a rebuttal with my, with my voice, right? Yeah. Like, my voice will say, oh, there's no way you can, you know, write a book. Nobody's want to, nobody's going to want to read it. And I'm like, hang on a second. There are the five reasons why I think some people might want to read my book. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. No, no, that sounds identical. It's funny because sometimes I will actually go and take, like, you know, I don't know if you do this, but if I have a discussion with somebody or even an argument and they say something to me on the spot, sometimes it's difficult for me to think of a response. Mm-hmm. And then I'll like spend the whole day, genuinely, I'll the drive home in my house. It doesn't matter. I will spend the whole day thinking like, I should have said this. No, you should have said this. You could have said this. This would have been better. And so the only way that it's, I've been able to kind of get that conversation out of my head sometimes is to write it down. And so at one point, my, um, my mom and I were having a conversation and, and she was like, you know, I don't think you would ever talk to anyone the way you talk to yourself. Like, I just, I don't, I don't see it ever happening. You would never tell somebody else you can't do that. You're inefficient. You're, you know, like, don't, don't aim there. And, and she's like, maybe you should start writing it down and, and go and take that book and like read it out to somebody you love. Just exactly what you're saying to yourself. And she's like, and see how comfortable you are with that kind of language. And so I did, I took it to my husband and I was like, you can't do this. You are incapable. (laughs) And he was like, this is offensive. Cause I don't think he, he kind of knew yeah. what was happening, uh-huh. <laughs> but it was the last time that I was, I think that brutal to myself. So journaling has really also helped me kind of tone down the inner voice a little bit, not just negotiate with her, but also be like, you know, you need to be more compassionate with yourself. Zip it, zip it. No, but I, I, I totally love that. Like you gotta be kind, you know, and empathetic to yourself first. So, um, I love Which that. Which is for me has always been one of the harder things. So I do wonder like when you, 
when you talk about that doubt, and I mean, you've lived such a rich experience and you will continue to be a leader in this space, I have no doubt. But a huge part of that has been because you, you know, you, you were raised in Cairo by these incredibly, you know, intelligent and passionate parents. You had the support of, of I think, key individuals in your life. You championed yourself and were, were confident in yourself. You had all of these kind of life-changing moments. And how can people be, you know, self-compassion or even believe in ourselves if we haven't necessarily had those those life-changing moments if we haven't created a company how can we how can we cultivate that self-belief that self-confidence i mean i i think what i've also found journaling to be very helpful with is celebration of success right and success can be big or it can be small moments but taking taking time to to celebrate success i think is important prioritizing oneself and, and, and self-care that, that, oh my God, that took me years to, to really kind of prioritize and mm-hmm. invest, invest in myself, be it physical, you know, physical fitness, mental fitness. Why did that take you years? Because I just never made time for it. There was always something more important than me, right? Like I, mm-hmm. you know, for years, especially when we started the company, I didn't sleep well. Um, I worked all the time, like including, you know, including evenings and weekends and vacations. I mean, I just worked, it was so out of balance and I don't Mm -hmm. think that was healthy. I don't think it was healthy for my family. Um, and I don't think it, it was healthy for me. And, and, um, you know, I, I wouldn't want to do that again. And I try to really, I mean, I still work super hard, but I really try to make time and create space. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I hear you. I think it's interesting. Um, and, and this is kind of where I'd, I'd love to take a deep dive a little bit into um, the way that we've been shaped by culture to a degree mm-hmm. or the way that we shape culture, because that's exactly what you're doing through your company. But self-care kind of opens up for me mentally this interesting conversation. Um, and actually introducing my mom again. I know your mom is a, is a key figure in your life um, and, and in your book. And, and my mom had this funny reaction when I was talking about self-care. Um, at one point, she said, we never had the privilege of self-care. Huh. Yeah. As, as a woman who like, you know, she has 11 children had moved to Canada and she said, you know, we, we sacrifice everything for our kids to have all these opportunities. It was never, self-care was never really top of mind for us. And, and it really made me recognize just how much I was raised with this very positive belief that you contribute to your collective, be it your family or community, that you act in service of them. But also, I think, in, similar to you, where you do usually kind of come last. Right. And, and I wonder, was that, did you have a similar kind of like journey with the idea of self-care? Or was it something where from the beginning you were like, no, I need this. I just, I just don't know how to fit it into my day. No, I mean, you're absolutely right. Like culturally, it's almost like if I thought about self-care, that was always accompanied with a lot of guilt, right? Like, yeah. what? You're going to make time. You're going to take time out to like go to the gym. Like, why not focus on the following five things, right? Mm-hmm. Like your partner, your family, your kids, da da da, da. Um, So yeah, it took a lot of introspection and just a lot of self-awareness to recognize that I, I need to create space. And when I create time and space for myself, it doesn't have to be much, but when I do that, I'm a better, I am a better person. I'm a better leader. I'm a better parent. Um, Mm -hmm. But, but yeah, but you're absolutely right. 
what's kind of been, you know, for you both in, in the tech space, but also kind of in your own, you know, personal reality, what have been, and this is going to be kind of a, what have been some of the most unusual assumptions people have made about you? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I'll tell you one, um, people kind of, um, confuse being nice with being weak. Um, mm. I think, you know, I, I, I always lead with a smile. I actually think my smile is my, um, uh, is my, is my like secret weapon. <laughs> <Just honestly. laughs> Your superpower. Superpower. <laughs> um, I love that. Killing them with kindness. Exactly. But I think people think that that's a sign of weakness and it's not right. Like you can still be tough um, and nice, I think. Yeah. I think that says a lot about the way we view leadership in general, this idea that like to be a leader, you have to be belligerent and like, you have to be kind of not even belligerent, but aggressive. You have to be, you have, you have to really kind of take up space. And I think that you can, and, and I do agree, you're a wonderful example of a leader who does it so well is, is yes, come show up, take up space, but do it in a way that invites other people as well. Which, which I think is actually quite rare for most leadership, not just in the tech space, but I, I can't think of a single industry um, where we where we say that person's really exceptionally kind and warm and welcoming. Yeah. You know, I they're an incredible leader. Yeah, I want to build on something you said too, right? Like I, I would say people also confuse the fact that I love input from others, right? With the with maybe with again, it's a sign of a weak leader. It's not. I love being inclusive and I love drawing for from diverse opinions and perspectives. And I think that makes for better decision-making in general and better outcomes. Um, but it doesn't mean that I'm, you know, I'm less knowledgeable or, 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 or less intelligent. Do you know what I mean? It's just oh, no, it's I hear more you. inclusive. Yeah. Or less like, you know, and it's interesting because um, what I find most, I'm, I'm a person who is not, I have 10 brothers and sisters. I oh. learned very young. If you ask all their opinions, you're never going to do anything. So I'm actually very bad at taking on opinions. If I feel really passionate about something, it's a skill I'm trying to work on. Um, everyone in my family tells me I'm working on it very ineffectively, but, uh, <laughs> but, but it's, it's, you know, like when I feel so sure about something, I rarely ask. And then I've started noticing when I started asking people, their natural assumption was to be like, oh, you're not confident mm -hmm. in your opinion. And I was like, no, 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 I still am. I'm trying to, I'm trying to be a better person. <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to invite you to the conversation, like to my mental conversation. Uh -huh. So I hear exactly what you're saying. Cause the second I started asking people, they'd be like, oh, you must not be confident in your own understanding of this concept or in your own. So I can, I can see how leading that way people would, would assume that automatically. Right. And so you have to kind of underscore that, no, 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 guys, you know, I'm crowdsourcing opinions and I'm crowdsourcing input here. Um, with but I still have like, exactly. exactly. So I have to ask, Rana, you and I have talked a lot about how faith has impacted our leadership and our work, uh, but also impacted, I think, other people's perceptions of our capabilities and of our leadership. And I know for you, you've always talked about how like empathy has really been rooted in faith for you. This, mm -hmm. this idea that you cannot, um, you know, you can't truly create a company or an idea or anything unless at the very heart of it, it is about empowering and supporting people and creating space for, for all people to live with dignity. And so I'd love to know what's kind of been both the biggest, where, where has faith kind of been a North star for you or has it? 
Um, and then what's been kind of your, your greatest challenge when it comes to your own kind of faith or, or spiritual journey? Yeah, I think faith is, has, and is really critical, um, to my journey. It's, it's funny. I, I, I often liken starting a company as, um, you know, as, 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 as almost like not, not as a religion, but, but you need a lot of faith when you're starting a company because there's a lot of uncertainty and you often have to paint a vision of this future world that doesn't exist yet. So you have to kind of paint this vision, evangelize it and bring people along this journey, right? Mm -hmm. And so that requires a lot of faith. You're often kind of stepping into the unknown and you have to have like a strong conviction that this is the right path. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I think, and, and that's been really deeply rooted in, 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 in my, you know, in my childhood and, and um, being a Muslim. Um, my, my personal journey with Islam has, I don't know, pro probably I would say it's kind of interesting from the outward of it. It looks like it's been up and down. I mean, I used to wear the hijab for 12 years. I decided to wear it. Um, and I was the very first, um, one of the first women in my family to put it on. Um, but I also, you know, 12 years later, it just did not feel like it was me anymore. And I made the decision to, mm -hmm. yeah. So in both cases, putting it on and taking it off, it was my own personal decision. Um, so I feel empowered that way. Do you know what I mean? Oh yeah. No, I hear you. Yeah. yeah. Um, I hear you. I think, you know, does it ever frustrate you people's, um, assumptions about your personal, be it your professional journey or your personal journey? Do you ever feel like, you know what, this is frustrating? Or do you feel like, no, I, this is an opportunity to have a conversation? Like, what, what is your, what's your approach? Yeah, I, I often, honestly, again, and it goes back to empathy. I just know that often people just don't know, right? And, and, I, and I, I always tell the kids that too. We are ambassadors for Islam and we're often ambassadors for the Middle East because a lot of people we interact with here have never really experienced, um, you know, being in the Middle East or meeting people who are Muslim. And so I've, I've really been, um, I take that as an opportunity to say, oh, so let me tell you about what it's like to wear the hijab or let me tell mm -hmm. you about why I decided to put it on or why I decided to take it off. I, I, in fact, I took it off when I was back in Egypt. Uh, it's not when I moved to the US, right? Which, Which is, I'm Jewish. assuming, what most people exactly. guess or, or say. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, so in this, like in your own kind of, both your relationship with Islam as the religion, your own spiritual journey, creating this company where I completely get what you're saying about like, it's almost, it really is almost like saying like, guys, follow me. I see the promised land, <laughs> taking people along the journey. Um, but, but in all of these spaces, you've obviously had to exercise a significant amount of courage, right? You've had to, you know, be able to say, I believe in this um, and either, you know, in, in the case of your own personal religious journey might be like, you don't need to believe in this, but this is something I'm confident in. Or in the case of your company, I, I want you to believe in this with me. Right. And in all of those, in all of those scenarios, I think one thing that you've, that you do incredibly well, and this podcast is an example of it, this, this conversation is an example of it, is you are so incredibly good at convincing people. And I honestly, you remind me of that saying of like, how do you boil, how do you, um, boil a frog and you like turn up the temperature slowly you put them in and turn it up slowly because uh -huh. sometimes Rana I will have a conversation with you and by the end I will have changed my mind and I didn't even know you were changing my mind the whole time interesting um, 
I'm like, wait, when did this happen? When did I suddenly start seeing this side of the, of the, you know, conversation? So, and I think it's a lost skill. I do. I think that ability to be able to bring people with that smile to a different perspective, to under, a different understanding. Have you, in your own career and in your own journey, what would you say are kind of the skills that you look at and the qualities that you look at and say, this has been the cornerstone of who I am and why I've been effective or successful or why I am such a great leader? First of all, nobody's ever told me that. I'm, I'm like floored. <laughs> oh, really? Uh, yeah. Oh, like, no, I have to. I think, I don't know. I don't remember who I was talking to, but somebody had told me like, oh, you know, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time or something? And I was like, what is that supposed to mean? And they were like, well, have you ever spoken with somebody who had this, like you were having this kind of huge mental conversation or, or it was genuinely like this open, it seemed like this untenable, you know, discussion. And they kind of made you think about it really differently and you didn't even realize it was happening. And I was like, Genuinely, there have been very few times that have happened. Um, usually it's with family members. And the last time it was when you and I had spoken about empathy and AI. Because I remember I had said to you, I really don't know if AI could ever be, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, if, I, I just, I don't see it as ever being fit for purpose because we create it in our likeness, right? Uh-huh. And, and humans are flawed inherently. And so AI is flawed. And then I don't, so I was saying all this to you and you, and literally within like, the span of a 30 minute conversation, I left being like, have you guys heard of this company? Oh, oh my God, they put empathy into Yeah. So, so everybody kind of um, was like, how did that happen? And I didn't even realize you were doing it. So yeah, no, it's definitely, I think it's one of your, your kind of secret superpowers. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, but I, I, th- I think the core of it is empathy. And again, starting with empathy and finding like these common connections with people, right? Um, and building on that, I, I also think authenticity, like just being authentic is really, really key. And um, I've always, you know, I, I just always, I'm, I'm just very open. Um, y- you, get, you get the true me where, wherever we are and whatever conversation we're in. And I, and I think that invites people to reciprocate with openness as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so do you, like when you, when you start thinking of kind of the qualities that have enabled you to lead in the way that you do, and somebody does come to you, like the conversation you and I had about like, no, you know, this is flawed because, and I'll use this as a hypothetical, but like, okay, so in AI, it's impossible to make it more effective and empathetic because it's built in our likeness, X, Y, Z. When you have conversations like that, where you're trying to find that common ground and trying to like create some sort of mutual understanding, what do you do? I think I, A, I actively listen. I acknowledge, like truly listen and acknowledge where people are at. And then I, I um, yeah, I think I find a comment, you know, maybe I'll draw on an example that I know people will resonate with. Um, um, I'll, I'll, I'll try to make it relatable and accessible, right? And I, th- I think mm-hmm. that's actually why you know, again, in the AI space, there's a lot of um, myth around AI, but also a lot of like concern and anxiety around AI taking over our jobs or taking over humans, da da da. And and I think because I project this openness and and warmth and empathy, I'm I'm able to 
I'm able to be the bridge, right? And, and show mm -hmm. people what this could look like, um, but also not be naive about it, right? And, and acknowledge, okay, here, here are the unintended consequences. Here's where this could go horribly wrong, but also how we could stop it. But this is also the version of the universe where this could be amazing and super helpful to humanity. And um, yeah, so again, it's back to faith and kind of painting this vision uh, and so some, some, you do that kind of inc incredibly effectively with younger people as well. Cause I know you're involved with, I believe it's Nunu and um, you're involved with the Massachusetts women's forum. You're involved with all of these spaces where you not only, I think, you know, highlight what it looks like to be a leader um, and, and that they themselves can be leaders, but you also spend quite a bit of your time actually working with young leaders and, and providing that kind of hands-on teaching and experience why is it so important for you to to not only serve as a role model, but also to actually equip uh, young people with with those skills and tools? I think that is probably the the biggest impact um, that we could be making right now is training the next generation of AI leaders to really be thinking not just about the technology, but the ethical and moral implications of it. And if nobody, <laughs> you know, if nobody exposes these young people to to that side of technology I, I think we'll 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 you know we'll be we'll be not we won't be designing technology in a human-centric way which we absolutely need it to be well so, so you have two young kids your your daughter is uh, your both your kids i believe are teenagers now um but you have two young kids what do you tell them about technology um first of all we i acknowledge that technology is a powerful tool it helps us do all sorts of things so i as a parent i like them to be exposed to technology but i often say don't just experience technology as a consumer or a user try to be a creator and so mm -hmm. that takes different forms for each of my kids for jenna who's 17 it's more about using technology for advocacy right and to help mm -hmm. you know have a voice and help others have a voice um, so that's how she applies technology in her world. For my son, who's 11, it's all about building the next generation of social robots and devices <laughs> and interfaces. Yeah, I know. It's, uh, it's, it's really cute. And so he has to think about privacy and he has to think I love, about, oh. <laughs> I love how you say, I'm sorry, I think that's such a mom thing. You're like, he's building killer robots. It's really cute. It's really <laughs> <laughs> it's a social robot. So they're social <laughs> He prototyped this summer um, as part of a new view, which is this uh, virtual summer camp that he did. He prototyped a smart fridge that counts how many times you open it. And if you exceed a certain number of times in a certain period of time, it says um, it rolls its eyes at you or something. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I need that. <laughs> oh, I need that. Do you know how many times I've aimlessly gone to the kitchen and opened the fridge expecting something new to be there? Right. <laughs> and it's never there. Like genuinely, I don't know. Like, I remember when I was younger, I think it is actually taught to me because when I was younger, like my mom, my dad, my siblings, there would always be something new in the fridge. And now that I'm older, I'm like, I'm the one buying the groceries. There's right. obviously nothing new, but I keep doing it. It's just such a reflex. I actually would need that. I'd get so many eye rolls in a day. <laughs> uh, although it's nice, but there's nothing in there. That's like, that's better than having a ton of ice cream. To oh, <laughs> really? I'm the opposite. So if I don't have junk food in the house, I'm, I'm a hardcore sweet tooth. Are you? Uh-huh. Yes. Okay. Talk so if I, if I don't have sweets in the house, I go out and buy them and then I eat them. But if okay. I have like an availability of sweets, I actually don't. I'm like, mm, I'll have some tea instead. 
Oh. oh. Yeah. Like, I'm the same. Like, even if I try to like watch what I'm eating, um, I'll end up thinking more about food. So I'll eat like twice as much. Whereas if I'm just like busy and I don't even consider it, you know, I'll naturally eat healthier. I, I tend to like focus less on it. So it's, you, you remind me, most of my sisters are like you, where they're like, well, no, if it's, if it's in the house, it's, it's there. It's gone, right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, most of my siblings, sisters and brothers are like that now that I think of it. So I have a couple more questions for you, Rana. Um, the first, and I think one of the most important is, and, I, and I've asked this to every guest, and, and it's, I honestly think my favorite question, if you had to bring one thing to the table, to this community of listeners, um, and to this community of change makers and aspiring change makers, it can be a book, an idea, um, a song, a moment, it can, a person, but if you had to bring one thing to the table, what would it be? Hmm. I have two conflicting thoughts, so let me try this. Um, my, my first thought uh, was um, the importance of diversity and inclusion in everything we do and just really being open to diverse voices. Um, that was my number one. The second thought I had uh, when you said book is um, this book, The Obstacle is the Way um, mm -hmm. uh, by Ryan um, Holiday. Um, I, I think that that book has been really helpful, again, especially now with with all of the challenges that we're all facing. Um, I found it to be, uh, yeah, to be quite helpful. Oh, why? How so? What's the book about? Give us a little a brief on it. Um, so the book talks about how, I, I think in a nutshell, when you face a challenge, you always have a decision to turn back. Um, or to power through. And the metaphor he gives is imagine a rock, right? You, you, you've come to the end of the road and there's this huge rock. Mm -hmm. uh, you could decide to just walk back or you maybe figure out a way to go around it or above it or underneath it. Um, and, I, and, I, and I just have this picture in my mind and I find it quite helpful when, you know, when, when, I, when I face a challenge. To kind of imagine how you actually, you know, get through it. Exactly. So my second favorite question is, what does being at the table mean to you? Being at the table means that you are um, invited to these important conversations, whatever the context is. So, so in, in my company, it would be, you know, being at our board meetings, being, um, you know, ensuring that I am there when important decisions are being made um, for mm -hmm. the company, but also maybe for the industry at large, for the AI industry at large. Um, but it's not just being at the table. It has to be exercising that voice too. Like being at the table is a privilege, right? Mm -hmm. And and you got to use that. You can't, you can't be in a position, you can't be in a position of influence or power and decide to be silent. I think that that's, not cool. <laughs> <laughs> so if you are the only one at the table who looks or sounds like you, who is kind of not what we normally define as a leader, um, unfortunately, what we normally socially define as leader, how do you speak up? Oh, I, and that happens to me all the time, um, especially in, in the tech industry. You speak up. You find a way to share what you think. Uh, you uh, find a way to get a word in. Uh, and 
and and you you know what too i think it's important to be i i, I always tell kind of my, my mentees it's it's really important that you become an expert a domain expert in something right so then mm -hmm. when you are speaking about a topic you're credible you bring a certain gravitas to the table. I think that's important. Mm -hmm. So again, it's 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 under the this umbrella of having a seat at the table is a privilege, and you got to prepare for it. Mm -hmm. So do the work, but then once you've mm -hmm. done the work and you're at the table, actually speak up. Make sure you know. Make it clear that you are someone who who not only should be there, but should also create space for other people um, who don't always look like what we see as typical leaders to be at the table. And in that vein. What does it mean to you? You know, you just mentioned your mentees and this importance of actually, you know, being a leader in that space by doing the work, do the research, do the work, know your stuff. Um, so what does it mean to you to actually invite others to the table and how do you do it in your, in your daily work, in your daily life? Um, I do it in a number of ways. So first of all, again, it's back to this concept of celebrating diversity and being inclusive. In, and, and it doesn't have to be gender. It doesn't have to be ethnicity. Uh, not Age is important. And this is why we include young voices. And, 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 and we have like a, a really robust um, summer internship program and summer training program for young people. Uh, but also diverse perspectives and backgrounds, right? Like, a, so we're part of the Partnership on AI Consortium, which brings together not just tech companies, but also civil liberty organizations like ACLU and Amnesty International. These are people that you wouldn't typically talk to as a technologist, right? But I think it's amazing because we sit around the table and it's a very different perspective and mm -hmm. they're often really challenging us and pushing back on us. And I think that's awesome. Um, so I, I think it's important to, again, create the environment and create space to welcome these um, different opinions and different perspectives. I think that's really important. I think that's, you, you already know, um, just I think how much I, I admire you and I admire your leadership. And I do think, you know, something that is, is such a cornerstone, aside from empathy, which is always the first thing that comes to mind, and, and your ability to really have a conversation with almost anyone, is how welcoming you are of making things better by having the difficult conversations. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's a testament, honestly, you know, I, I don't know if you were the same as me, but when you saw like a kid misbehaving when you were young, you wouldn't you like sometimes be like, man, where are those kids' parents? Um, <laughs> like, some, like clearly, and I think a, 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 honestly a testament to you is just how incredibly thoughtful and empathetic your kids are and um, how much, you know, Jenna in particular, who I've gotten to work with, cares about the world in a way that most people, and I'm not even going to say 17 year olds. I think that's insulting to 17 year olds. Most people do not like she genuinely looks at it as like this global engine and how can she, you know, how can she be a positive, um, um, wheel in that? And I think so much of that comes from your role modeling to her. So I can't put into words how much I appreciate your leadership. Um, appreciate you as a person. And I'm so excited that our community got to hear from you today. A very little bit of your story, to be honest, um, you guys have to go out and get girl decoded which is the book that um, Rana wrote, really, uh, you know, about her journey, but also I think, uh, to be quite honest, it's, it's more, I don't know how to explain, it's more of a, a manifesto on how we can actually be more empathetic in our technology and empathetic with one another, to, to be honest. It's an incredible book um, and a testament to the incredible work that you continue to do every day. So Rana, 
very quickly, where can everyone find you if they want to see more about your work, learn more about it, buy your book, all the good stuff? <laughs> I am uh, very easy to find online. I'm on all the social media platforms. Uh, look me up. And I really do try to get back to everybody who reaches out. If you do end up getting the book and reading the book or listening to it, I, I also narrated it in my own voice. Uh, do share what resonated the most with you. You know, I, I, I know, Alette, you're writing your own book, um, and I'm so excited and I can't wait to read it. But I found <laughs> that writing a book is, is the start of new connections and new conversations and new friendships. So that's been like, that's been the, the, the thing that surprised me the most about uh, writing Girl Decoded. So, um, oh, I think it's, out. I think it's incredible because I, I can imagine how many young, like young people, girls, boys, everyone is probably holding that book and saying, you know, she was able to do this, then I'm going to go after, you know, all of the dreams that I have. So you guys can find it on it on LinkedIn um, and Twitter. She is at, at, at U B K A L I O U B Y. Um, she's on Instagram at Rana L Caliubi and her website is runnalcaliubi.com. Rana, thank you so much for taking the time today. My love to your family. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Amplify our important message by leaving a review or subscribing. Collaborate with us to encourage more people to shout for change. And be on the lookout. We have more episodes coming soon, and I can't wait to share them with you. From At The Table, I'm Dr. Lamarabit. Thank you for joining us.